First Peter. You guys, we're going to First Peter this morning. We're looking at chapter 4. If you're just stopping in, we've been in First Peter for a while now. Um, and the, the kind of the, the central claim of First Peter is that Christians are strange, right? We are aliens, we are strangers, we're exiles, we're sojourners. He makes this claim, I think it's 2.11, I might be wrong about that, but he spends about a chapter, the first chapter of the book, saying this is what you've got. We've got a living hope, a living word, a living stone. We've got all these resources and it's good news because we need a lot of stuff. We need the right things, we need the right vantage point, we need the right resourcing to our hearts because it's hard to be weird. And once he says that we're aliens and strangers for the rest of the book, He's going to unpack it. This is what it looks like to be a strange husband or a strange wife or a strange citizen of a nation. This is what strangeness looks like. And chapter 4 is yet another expression of the oddness of being a Christian. We are a different group of people. So we'll kind of read it together and then we'll just kind of walk through it and try to unpack what it all means. So 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... Arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his life, excuse me, the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, Lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead. So they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Okay, we're just going to like walk through it bit by bit and see what's going on here. So verse one, arm yourself with what? What is the essence of what, what do we arm ourselves with? You think of arming, you're thinking that you're girding up, right? You're you know, getting your sword, you're getting your shield, you're getting your um, gun, your whatever it is. Like what, what does it mean? What do you, what are we to arm ourselves? What do we prepare ourselves? When we go into battle, what do we need according to Peter? An attitude. Okay, very good. What attitude is that? Okay, Christ's attitude. Now, can you think of any other passage in the New Testament where it basically says, you should have the same attitude of Jesus? Do you know, does that, does that ring a bell for you? Yes, okay. And Nancy, you're nodding. Do you know the passage? There's a, you, might, you might recognize the phrase, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who? Any of that helping? Go to, okay, go here. I'll show you. Go to Philippians 2. This is the Christ hymn. Philippians 2, same exact idea, although Paul is going to unpack it a little bit. It's amazing. Paul and Peter are two very different people, by the way, like very different orientation of the world, and yet they speak with such um, similarity about so many things. So Philippians 2, verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, exactly what Peter says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, and the whole thing turns into this this dissertation on the humility of Jesus. So when we, going back to Peter's version of this, what we are to do is we are to arm ourselves with this attitude of Jesus who suffers terribly. It's exactly what's going on in, in Philippians 2. That Jesus was willing to humble himself, become obedient to death, even death on a cross. He takes the lowest place. 
in the same way that Jesus takes the lowest place, we find some protection, some armoring, some preparation by taking on that attitude that we would become people that are meek. Um, Do you guys know Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith? Have you read any of his books? He wrote, uh, I'm blanking. What did he write? Kelly, where's my wife? I need to know where you are. There you are. You are what you love. Thank you. So um, his stuff is really good. Jamie Smith, we've talked about him in this room. He's a, basically he's a Christian philosopher. I think he teaches at Calvin College, if I remember correctly. Um, and he, uh, he recently wrote an essay. It would be really worth reading, I think. If you just go and you just search for James K.A. Smith. I should, have, I should have captured the exact title of this essay. It's something like, I'm a philosopher, but thinking won't get us out of this mess. Something like that. If you Google that, you'll be, that'll be close enough and you'll get it. And in it, he says this. This is, this is so great. When you think of arming yourself with humility, with meekness, with lowliness, with his willingness to suffer. Here's what, here's what Smith says. He says, as a young Christian philosopher, I wanted to be the confident, heresy-hunting Augustine, vanquishing the pagans with brilliance, fending off the... I don't even know how to say these names. The Manichaeans and the Pelagians with ironclad arguments. But as a middle-aged man, I dream of being Mr. Rogers. <laughs> he says, when you're young, it's easy to confuse strength with dominance. But when you're older, you realize the feat of character it takes to be meek. I used to imagine my calling was to defend the truth. Now I'm just trying to figure out how to love. There's a lot of wisdom in there. And this is from a guy who's, I mean, and he's going to continue to seek to defend the truth, right? We must always be, we've talked about in this room, we we, we never get to like let go of grace and truth. We must be a people that are profoundly gracious and kind and compassionate and lowly, sweet natured. Grace. But we must be a people that are ferociously committed to the truth. We can't make inaccurate statements about the world. The world needs to be able to speak about themselves and the world around us accurately. But sometimes you can get like, we're just going to be the truth sword. And he's like, no, 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 no. We must be a people that are gentle and meek. And it's really, really hard. Which is why Peter says, arm yourselves. Because this ain't easy. If you're going to be the freak. If you're going to be the weirdo. If you're going to be the one that is despised. If you're going to be the one who just doesn't go along with the crowd, it's going to be hard. And you need something that's going to arm you. And Peter's suggesting what you might arm yourself with is the attitude of Jesus. That what he did, you, take your, you look to him, you take your cues from him, and you're endlessly thinking, how could I be like him? He is ferocious in his statements of truth. He was endlessly soft towards broken people. Even when those broken people come at him with clubs. How can we do that? We've got to arm ourselves with that. He's not kidding. This is hard is what we've got to do. Okay, so you got that to start? All right, now, I want, I want to ask you guys, what does this mean? Let's, let's talk about this one. He says, also in verse 1, He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. He who has suffered in his body is done with its sin. I don't think that gives up its secrets easily. What, and as always, we can get it wrong on the way to getting it right, but let's kind of toss this around. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because... He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. What does that mean? When he died. Say that again, Terry? Death. Okay, what, what about death? Give me more. Give me a full sentence. When you die, you suffer. Okay, so that you think that perhaps that it means that once we die, 
then it's all going to be, we don't, we're not going to suffer anymore. And that's a true statement, right? So it is certainly the case that when we, you know, when you finally take your last breath, you'll be done. But would that be helpful? When I say arm yourselves with the same attitude because eventually you'll be dead, right? I think that's, a, it's true, but I don't know that that's the reasoning that he's using. What does he mean? First of all, who is it? When he says he who has suffered in his body is done with sin, who is he talking about? Okay, so one theory is that it's Jesus. Okay, we're going to keep kind of, so if, if what they're saying is that because Jesus has died, because he suffered in his body, he is done with sin, depending on what we mean being done with sin, that might be a hard thing to apply to Jesus. Because it's not as if Jesus stopped sinning when he died, right? Can we agree with that? So it's weird. Now, maybe it means that he's done atoning for sin, but I'm afraid that that would be bringing something into the text that's not really there. So I don't think it can be, I don't think it can be Jesus. Yeah, jump in here. Ellen? version that I have in my, um, for my You got a new version? Okay, let's hear it. Let's see, this might, this might. Then, as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Okay. So again, that's great. So that's the same, same that's, that's, very, that's an accurate translation. He who has suffered in his body. Who is the one that has suffered in his body? Who do you think it is? Christ. Um, I don't think it is because Jesus is not done with sin because he never started with sin. Yeah, who do you think it is? Well, it's the person who submitted themselves to the will of God, right? Because the flesh and the spirit war against each other. That's right. Suffering in your flesh, which means you're denying your flesh. It means you're submitted to this, the will of God or following in the following one. I think that's exactly what it is. So there's this, there's this phenomenon. And you guys know what this is like. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of making decisions once. Because I don't like making them 40 times. Right? And so when you make the decision, you just decide like I am fill in the blank. Right? Like I'm not going to eat any cookies this week. And I don't want to hear about it anymore. If I got to make a decision every time I'm presented with a cookie... Well, then we're going to have like some victories and some, some failures, right? But it's so much better to just, like, just decide once and then we're done here. Like I'm not, the question's been answered and we're not going back to it. That's what's in view here. He who has suffered in his body, I think what he's saying is you can have this perspective, this attitude that matches Jesus where you're like, all right, I get it. We're freaks. We're aliens. We do it different than anybody else does and it's going to be painful. Okay, I'm in. Understood. We're done here. That's what he's saying. That there's this ability to say, if you will count, the, just why Jesus says, listen, count the cost before you start building this tower. And if you don't count the cost, then the whole long, if you don't count the cost up front, what are you going to do? He's going to count the cost like all along the way. And eventually you're going to be like, yeah, I don't want to do this. He's saying, no, 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 no. You decide once. You lock this in. That we say, ah, I don't like this. Okay, let's go. And we're done. We make the decision that we're going to be Christians. We make the decision that we're going to be thought weird. We make the decision that there's going to be a price to pay, and we just lock it in. Jennifer? As you say that, it makes me think that when you make multiple decisions, there's not as much commitment Right. when you say, all right, I'm all in. That's it. That's it. Decide once, lock in, and then we do it. Because that is the commitment. That is what we, if you were in the first hour, we see Jesus doing this. If you weren't there, I won't unpack it yet. We'll wait till the second hour to unpack it. But Jesus, there's this moment in Jesus' life where he makes this decision and nothing's going to take him off his game. Right? 
Peter is advocating that if our attitude is like Jesus' is, that's how Jesus does it. He makes it once, and, and, we're, and, we're, and it's go time. Kelly? Uh, sometimes suffering has a sanctifying effect, too, and that sanctification, kind of what she was saying earlier, puts sin in a different light. So what might used to have been a desirable temptation no longer, in light of the suffering you've been through, maybe you're Yes, that's right. There's, there's some, and, and, and have, you, have you noticed this in your life? Whatever thing that you're being tempted by that you seek to avoid, if you make the decision that I'm not going to do it, and, and, and people vary, I recognize, you might feel like easy for you to say, there are things in my life that are easy for me to just be like, no, we're done here. And there are things where I'm more likely to be tripped and, and teased away. But there is something about the Paul, Paul uses the same language once again. He says, reckon yourself dead to sin. It's, there is a commitment, there is an intellectual commitment. I this is off the table. And once we do that, then the stupefying effect of sin, which is oh so real in my own life, is diminished. Because I'm not sitting here. I, my capacity for self-justification is like through the roof, right? And so what I want to do is I want to take that thing out at the knees. And so that there's no opportunity for the justifi- justifications to begin. I'm just like, yeah, we're done. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I got other things to go do. And if we do that, then we begin to see sin in a different light. It doesn't, it doesn't have the opportunity to get his foothold and to, and to pull us back in. Catherine? Uh, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. That's right. And after Christ, like I'll give an example. I noticed that I walked into the church one day and I saw a person and I immediately judged them. And so now within Christ, I noticed that and these words just came out of my mouth. I don't have to do that anymore. That's right. That's right. We really are. We're slaves to sin in our very nature, but we've been set free from that, so we don't need to do it again. Now, we will, because we don't always stay on our A game, but we can. And what Peter is not teaching, by the way, like a sanctified sinlessness. Some people believe that once you become a Christian, then you're, you know, like you'll never sin again. Like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> um, I mean, it's just not. But what he is emphasizing is that those who commit themselves to suffer, to count the cost, who said, I will willingly endure scorn for my faith, then they have the opportunity here to triumph. They, sh- they demonstrate a triumph over sin. It doesn't need to drag you down. We break with it. We cease to participate in it. And that commitment to suffer, right? Not just a commitment to be righteous, but a commitment to, okay, I understand it's going to be painful. It reveals this new way of life. I wonder if you, okay, did anybody go back, and this is a test, did anybody go back and watch um, To End All Wars? Has anybody seen it? A handful of you? How was it? Awesome. It's amazing, isn't it? Okay. And yet, did you say awful? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it is, you guys, if you haven't watched it, I really should, but there's this moment, and I can't even recall, you guys have seen it more recently than I have, um, there's something that happens. So Kiefer Sutherland is um, one of the early people that, that walks with Jesus in, in really pretty painful ways. He gets paralyzed by, by taking on the consequence of somebody else's sin. But there's this moment where, like, somebody else turns and Kiefer... Do you remember where Kiefer smiles? Do you remember this moment where he recognizes that it's working, it's happening, the gospel is spreading in this camp? 
because people are doing specifically this. People decide, I will suffer. And it puts this, you can see the keeper smiles. He's like, God, it's real. It's happening. It's, it's First Peter 4 is coming to pass. And if you haven't watched it yet, you should go watch it. This would be a great week, in fact, to watch that, watch that film. All right, so that's what's going on there. Now let's go, go down to chapter 3. I want you to see something that you may have missed. Anybody know there's a heading over this type of verse? Verse 3, for you've spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. We have a fancy, not a fancy term, but we have a term for this in the New Testament. You know what we call that? You know this? It's called a vice list. And the New Testament is filled with vice lists. Where it just runs through and says all these bad things. And we're going we're gonna to rip through a whole bunch of them. And, and you, can't, you can't memorize too many. There's many lists as I'm going to give you. You can't keep up with it. So don't worry. But here's what I want you to notice. Just listen to the first and second item of every vice list. Okay, this pervades the New Testament. Right? Might be, might be surprising to you. So, and you want to jot them down, feel free. Romans 13, 13. He says this. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissensions and jealousy. That's Romans 13. There's a whole slew of these. 1 Corinthians 5.11. He says, but now I'm writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality. Impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Oops, I just messed it up. Dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5.3. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place. But rather, thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Two more. Bear with me. There's a lot of these. But I'll just give you two more. This is Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore... Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. <coughs> and the final one we'll see is Titus 3, verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. All right, did anything strike you as common on those lists? Not just common in the list, but what leads every list? <laughs> sexual immorality. Oh, isn't that 
over and over and over and over. And there's a whole, it's not the only thing. There's greed and there's dissensions and factions and envy. There's all kinds of things. But number one or number two on every list is sexual immorality. It absolutely dominates these lists, okay? And that's worth noting, particularly in 2021, right? That is relevant to us. Now, I want, to, I want to slow down here for a little bit because I want, I want you guys to really think about what's going on in our world and what it means for Christians. I, uh, I read an article in Christianity Today this week, which I'm not, I, don't, I don't typically read Christianity Today, but a friend of mine sent me this link and I was, it was striking. Um, he basically, the, the article is about the fact that Christian leaders don't know what to do with the fact that evangelicals across the board are living with each other, living with each other before they marry. We call it cohabitation. That literally a majority, more than half, a majority of evangelicals cohabitate prior to marriage. I think it was like 53% of people that self-identify as evangelicals. Um, it's not, I'm not saying that like they like, you know, they're like kissing in their engagement and they mess up and his hands go places. I mean like they, they get a lease. Like they just, it's complete, you know, complete surrender. You, in the battle against sin... It's always going to be, you have two options. You can struggle or you can surrender, right? Struggle is like you're trying and you're making decisions and you're stepping back, but maybe you fail and then you repent and then you fail. And maybe, maybe in your struggle you put the things in place that you're, you're gold, you know, that you're like, you really succeed. But the other thing is that you just surrender. You're just like, yeah, whatever. Like I'm in. Like I'm not going to fight it. I'm just going to, I'm not even trying. A majority, more than half, of evangelicals live with someone before they get married. And not only that, we, we, we could call it premarital cohabitation, but in fact, 47% of those people, evangelicals that are living with somebody, don't even end up marrying them. Okay? We're no different from the world. This is a huge deal, okay? Now, the New Testament, treat, here's, here's what I think is interesting and what I would encourage you to think about this as, as, we, as we discuss this and frame this out. For a couple of hundred years, we have gotten by on essentially a Victorian social, uh, sexual ethic. That like, it's just woven into the culture that like, good girls slap bad boys' hands, right? And like, this is just normal. Good people are sexually pure. Good people save sex for marriage, and so let's just kind of do that. And I submit to you that that is gone, baby, gone, baby, gone, okay? And so just so... Take this, normal, regular, ordinary people have lots and lots of sex outside of marriage. That's just what normal people do, okay? And to the extent that we're trying to tell people, whether it's our children or the world at large, that that's not true, that the normal thing, the good thing, the proper thing is to wait until you're married to have sex, that message gets practically zero resonance in people's hearts because it's self-evidently not true. Okay? And this is actually what the Bible says. What, what the Bible says here about this sexual ethic is verse 4. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. They think it's weird. Like normal America, just normal ordinary life is like whatever you're trying to tell me about people waiting to get married to have sex. Like that's just weird 
okay? And it's been weird for like a long, long time. When Kelly and I were dating uh, and then engaged, she worked at a restaurant. And with apologies to those of you that might own restaurants or work at a restaurant, my understanding is that restaurants are just like, generally speaking, filled with very unsavory, like the back kitchen of a restaurant is like an unsavory place. Have you noticed this? You'd never know in the front room. The food, the food's wonderful. But everybody that I've, I've never worked in a kitchen, so pardon my slander here, but everyone that I've ever known that works in a kitchen is like, oh yeah, like it's just like all kinds of crazy goes, goes on in, in the kitchen and among these people, right? Well, when we were, when we were dating and they, they found out that we weren't living together, this was, you know, we've been married for 30 years. This was a while ago. Their predictions of like doom for us, you know, like the foolishness that you're marrying this guy and you've never lived with him and no, 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 it's going to go terribly. You're like, like I, don't, I don't know. I can't remember if they happened to know that we also weren't having sex. But that would have just blown their minds, you know, like what a bunch of nut jobs. We are the nut jobs. Like that is just insanity, okay? And so what I want to suggest to you is if we are going to be... Um, distinctly Christian, we need to like just completely abandon any hope that some existing cultural ethic about sexual, we're not trying to get people to do a better job abiding by what they know in their hearts is right. They don't. They don't know this. They think that you're insane, okay? What we need to rather do is, is, is embrace the strangeness of being a Christian. Listen, man, Jews don't get to eat pork you know, if you're a Muslim, you wear a burqa. You know, if you're, if you're from a, a sick faith and you, you never cut your hair and you wear a turban, hold on to your hats. You know what we do? We don't have sex with people that we're not married to. And it is super strange. It is bizarre in the world. But, but Paul, Peter, I mean, throughout the New Testament, over and over again, they're going to say, this is it. Pa- Paul's going to say this. Go to, go to 1 Thess 4. I want you to see this. Uh, again, this, the, the normalcy of what we are swimming against. Here's normal. Look, look at this. First, that's 4.3. It's God's will that you, he's talking to the church, that you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. <clears throat> Have you ever wanted to know God's will? Here it is. It's God's will that you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. This is what normal people do. Normal people, heathen, pagan, however, whatever term you want to use. These are not meant to be pejorative. It's just the non-Christian world. That's what they do. That sexual immorality is a marker of not knowing God. So of course they do. Why wouldn't they? Right? Of course. But we're different. We're weirdos. And if we embrace it and if we raise our children and be like, hey, this is going to be tough on you because the whole universe is going to be saying something otherwise. Never mind your own body is going to be saying something otherwise. But we are to be different. And this matters, you guys. As people, if you're watching the, um, if I say deconstruction, is this meaningful to you? Yeah. What, What does deconstruction mean as we're talking about it in like the cultural moment? Breakdown of this. Yeah, but do you know how we use it in reference to Christianity? It's kind of become a bit of a technical term. So we would. So if I said deconversion, that might that might ring a ring a bell for you guys. That we keep seeing people that abandon high high profile people that have like abandoned the faith, right? So there'll be like you know famous YouTuber this guy or famous Christian musician that guy, and as they crash and they burn, one of the things there's a couple of things that keep coming up, but one of them is the sec, the Christian sexual ethic is anathema to people. Right? And, and generally speaking, it's not even our, our, the, the restrictions that we put.
put on ourselves, right? The, the restrictions that we put on heterosexual marriage, but our restrictions that we place on homosexuality, on transgenderism, on, you know, any other kind of thing, like, that is just anathema to people. Like, the fact that we are so backward, so restrictive, and yea, even so hateful in their perception about any kind of sexual practice um, is, is, is causing people to say, like, you know, I can't, I can't abide what you, what you say. And what is really a little bit tricky is that we have, it's true, you can make a pretty good case against us that we tend to be pretty hypocritical because we will insist on sexual mores for other people based on the scriptures. But more than half of self-identifying evangelicals are sharing a house with somebody they're not married to. That's deeply and profoundly hypocritical. And that, that hypocrisy is not lost on the world. If we are to be Christians, we are to embrace a strangeness, an oddity, a very distinct sexual ethic that makes no sense to the rest of the world. But for us, what we know, what we should know, what we should experience is that we have the best sex lives of anybody on earth because we save it for marriage. The, the biblical vision of, of sex is like nobody that's not married to each other partakes in this. And then everybody who is married to each other does that there is a richness and an intimacy and a, and a shared camaraderie and a mutual delight. Christians should have the best sex lives of anybody. And we should, we should be able to say, listen, I know it's weird, it looks strange to you, but I'm telling you, it's just better. Our incidence of sexually transmitted disease and unwanted pregnancy and abortion and go down the line of all, the, all these things like now, like, you know, it's not really issues with us because we are following this pattern that our that our king has laid out for us. But it's weird. I get it. I grant you it's super weird. And there are things about it that are really difficult. Really, really difficult. But this is what we're calling people to. And this is, Peter says, if you do this, you're going to be a freak. But you should do it anyway. You should consider the cost. Make the choice once and lock it in. Kat. Well, as a person that's been married for 40 years, how, how could you practically put that into practice? You know, because that doesn't really apply to me anymore. Well, well, yes. Okay, great. So preaching to people, you know. Right. So I, th I think for for people that are already married, and they're like, well, well so the f the first and most obvious thing is don't have an affair. Okay. So there's that. I'd say for married people, it's not just so it's don't actually have an affair with somebody that's not your spouse, which is the only person with whom you can have an affair. Um, but it also means avoid pornography. I don't. This report didn't look at the statistics of pornography among evangelicals, but I shudder to think. Right? So there are ways that we can be sexually pure. It also means that within your marriage, that there's going to be a richness and a, a, of, of mutually sexually satisfying relations, right? That we, we don't just say, yeah, you know, whatever, it's fun, da da da. But that we, that we, the Christian vision of this is very, it's very bifurcated. It's like we don't have sex when we're not married, but we do when we are. And so all the jokes about, you know, there's, there's all kinds of like the idea that, you know, you get married and people stop having sex. I'm like, well, that's weird because I wasn't having sex before I got married. We should do it after, you know? So, but, and then this, but then here's my final thought, is that we teach our children. This is a huge thing. That's the only thing I can think of is that my son is living with this girlfriend. Right. I mean, they kind of visit each other, but, so, you know, I mean, it's kind of too late for me to tell him. Well, it's not too late. Well, well so I would say this, is he a believer? Does he profess to be a believer? Okay, so this is the thing, like, um, if, if, well, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to this in a second, but I think, I, I, I think that as parents, now, but he's also out of the house, he's old, he gets to be, make his own decisions. So our children, as they grow up, 
they, my, 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 my oldest son, Benjamin, he doesn't have to obey me anymore. He used to have to obey me, but he doesn't. I love him, but he's a mature adult, and he gets to make his own decisions, good or bad, right? It's, it's, it's his call. Um, uh, but when they're, when they're with us, we have the right and the obligation to shape them and to constrain them. As they get older, and once they're no longer under our authority, they still get the benefit of our wisdom. And you could still have a conversation to say, you know, this is what I see in the scriptures. I'm concerned for you. And, and in fact, look at this. Check this out. We skipped this because we don't know what to do with it. But in that First Thess 4 passage, listen to what he says. This is back in First Thess 4, verse 8. Uh, we'll, uh, I'll go to verse 6. He says, um, the Lord, in the middle of verse 6, the Lord will punish men for all such sins as we've already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. He's speaking to believers, to a Christian audience, and he's saying, you guys, be warned. Like there are negative consequences that the Lord will sovereignly bring into your life if you disobey him in this. And so I think we have an obligation, even to our adult children, um, particularly those that know Jesus, to say, you claim that you're a Christian, but your life is bearing one of the one of the crystal clear neon markers of unbelief. So I think it's important. Those are some of the things that we that we have that we have the opportunity to do. But you do that now. You're you're it's you're out. Once your kids grow up, it's no longer command and control. It's persuade. It's align. It's you're going after their hearts. It's you don't you don't have to tell them what to do. Um, but you could say, son, look at this. I want to show you something I've seen in the scriptures that I just want you to have the benefit of knowing what I, what I've seen. I think we we can do that. And one more thing is I can attribute to what you're saying about you suffer some consequences because me and my husband lived together. Okay. And our, we were teenagers in twenties. Yep. And um, I have seen over the years, you know, my I don't know what degree or anything, but things that we have lacked that we could have had, you know, otherwise. Oh, to be sure. And, and the good news is that one of those vice lists, that 1 Corinthians 6 passage in particular, if you go look at it, it's like, you can't do any of these things. None of these things you want to inherit the kingdom of God. But then his next line is, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were justified. Like there's a cleansing. So the sins that we commit, Jesus is gracious to forgive. And that's true for you. That's true for anyone here, right? Every one of us whose lives have been marked by sin, including sexual sin, um, we live in a sea of grace and he's merciful and he's loving. But the purpose of his grace, so we're not, we're not saved um, how do I phrase this? There's some little pithy way, but it escapes me. We're not saved by our good works, right? We're not saved by being right. It's not like, well, those of you that were good, good boys and girls, you're going to get good ahead. We're not saved by good works. But we're also not saved from our good works, as if we don't, aren't supposed to then go and live upright lives. But we are saved to good works. So whatever is true, whatever yesterday held, whatever was true yesterday, it can change right now. Right? And we begin again to surrender our lives to him. And wherever you're at in the spectrum, if you're not married yet, that you abide by the Christians, if you're a Christian, at least, by the Christian sexual ethic. And it will be difficult, right? That your relationship, it's hard to just take a step back, especially if you're already going places with somebody that you're dating. Never mind if you're just, you know, hooking up with rando people. Hang on one second. But you can make a change. And things can, th your, your life can begin to be different. And if you're on the flip side of that, where you've, this has never been something you've talked to with your kids. If you're already married, you could change that. If your own sexual relationship with your spouse is lacking. If you're, if you're obeying this prohibition on sex, but you're married, like flip that around. Because it's a, 
Oh, there's so many reasons to flip that around, but we should, be, we should be equally strong on both halves of this equation. Okay, final thing, and then we're going to move on. I just wanted to say that God has blessed us, that we did repent. It's not, you know. Amen. And now we've been married for 40 years. Amen, right? And God, God constantly, if he wasn't dealing with us in our sin, what the heck would he do, right? I mean, it's kind of the only option. And, he, and we are washed and sanctified, and we're new. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And he wants us to walk in that. All right? This is a serious thing. It shows up over and over and over again. And by and large, I think, I'll say this, final, final thought about the kids, our kids, is I think we've been a little bit lazy. And we've been allowing or assuming or crossing our fingers that this, like, Victorian ethic that kind of, like, has trickled down through the decades might disciple our kids. And it's not working. It's not working anymore. Right? If you are not specifically intervening to shape them and to call them to a higher standard, this river is flowing rather fast. It's been flowing very fast for a long time, which is why a majority of evangelicals live somebody before they're married. Like, it's gonna, it would take some effort, those of you with younger kids, to begin to call them not just to some supposed sense of goodness, but to the distinctness of Christianity. Okay, Lily? There's so much wisdom in that, Lily, and I appreciate all that. The, as we, the Bible, it's, it's always helpful to appeal to self-interest because that's all anybody actually cares about, right? And so to, to say, like, you know, if you do these things, yeah, there's, you know, it, it may feel good, but there's a cost. that you, you just can't see the cost right now. This is the very nature of sin is that all you can see is the benefit 
but you don't, the cost is much more hidden. And this is just the way the devil works. That's, Proverbs 5 is a great passage on sexual immorality. And it's, he's like, yeah, 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 I know. The lips of an adulterous drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. What he's saying is, I know, she's super hot. This is going to be amazing. But hang on, because it ends badly, right? And we need to appeal to that. What, your, your paradigm from the physical to the spiritual, whatever it is, like, there's a lot of things that are great fun. But it just is, it's going to be more costly than you can presently see. And to help our kids see that is a good idea because you will be one voice. You are a significant voice. But you are one voice out of a thousand, out of ten thousand. And I've heard Quig say many times that if we don't disciple our kids, the devil will. And it's just happening. It's, this, is, this is something. And we're, we're, frankly, we're losing pretty hard in this regard. And so there's something, I, I just encourage you, embrace the weirdness of it and talk about being, this is what Christians do. It's just part of the deal. And the benefits are great. It's kind of like the cost, for the, from the Christian version of this, the cost is pretty obvious up front. But the benefits are more hidden. With sin, the benefits are obvious, but the cost is hidden. And we're trying to learn how to like, how do we, how do we trust him that this is a better way to do it? Right? Okay, let's keep going. Here's a question for you. Verse 5. Look at verse 5. Well, before you look at verse 5, let me ask the question. Is the Christian sexual ethic binding on non-Christians? <laughs> is the Christian sexual ethic binding on non-Christians? What do you think about this? I want to hear it. Let's, let's have a cage match. Stuart? Um, and go nice and loud. Duh. It is binding in the reality and the truth. All the things that you talk about, the, 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 the wages or the ravages <coughs> of the behaviors and the things like that are still going to manifest in Christians and non-Christians if they choose to go that route. Okay. The Christian just has the word and the warning that they obviously we miss the mark all the time, but but it still doesn't. You know, you look at the cultural decline in sexuality, and they had similar things going on back in the time that this was written. I mean, there was massive sexual immorality then, as there is today. But this, there's still that way. There's still that brokenness that will come as a result of that. Okay. You, you understand it or not. Okay, so the laws of physics, the laws of the spiritual rules of cause and effect, they're equally binding on Christians and non-Christians. So from that perspective, you would say, yes, it's binding on Christians and non-Christians. Okay, so we got one answer here. DFP? Um, totally agree with Stuart. Next step then is, okay, what's our responsibility in dealing with it? And, you know, like in multiple of the vice lists, it talks about if a brother does these things, right. don't do it. So... There's not a call, a strong call for us to be out there okay. enforcing the morality among non-Christians. Okay, great. So D DFP is saying, yes, it is binding on non-Christians, but it's not our job to enforce it. Okay, so that's, that's interesting. Okay, yep, way back. So I have to kind of disagree. I think it's a matter of like chicken and the egg sort of, right? Because the, the, the rules and this non-purity and this call that God's given us and the Holy Spirit that he gives us empowers us to follow it response that we have to Jesus. And we, when we approach the world like you need to do this because of Jesus, they, they don't understand, it's not even something they understand, right? The, the, um, the spirit of the world has already come to their mind, this is the truth that they can't accept. So us going around saying, this is what has to happen and this is what the truth is and you need to follow these rules, I've got, I'm not game to that, what are you talking about? Okay. 
So, so you would say it's not, so your answer is it's not binding on them because we, we have no capacity to actually help them understand. Well, they just, they haven't received that. Right. Okay. I mean, I'm not saying that they're not correct in the fact that there is still a consequence for not following, but they've made, they haven't even made the first step of decision to say, okay, okay well, Jesus is it. This is how we walk in Jesus. This is perfect. I love cage math. Okay, Kelly, you're next. Oh, but I was just going to say, it depends on what you mean by binding. I'm, 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 because, yes, sexual immorality is against God's moral law. It's judgment. It's sin. And he will call it sin every year if we are our So it's not like, you know, non-believers get to go have as much sex as they want. God doesn't mind. Believers know you can't. Okay. So by, by binding of, of God's judgment and wrath, he's wrath is put out on all sin. However, I agree Okay, so... I was going to say that. I mean, so binding and yes, it earns the, the judgment of God, but if by binding you mean, therefore they're obligated to live this way, I would say, well, you can't expect that. That's, that's an unreasonable expectation of you to have in a believer when they don't have access to the Spirit of God. Okay, excellent. Okay, Jason, you're next, but let me just recap in case you couldn't hear Kelly from the back. So Kelly's saying, yes, it's binding, because it's got under the court of, of court of God, all these things are so, and all sin will in incur his judgment. But it's not our job to enforce that. We're, we are, so yes, under his court, but we are not, we're not officers of that court. It's not our job to go around telling people, which is pretty much what DFP was saying as well. Right, Jason? That's what I was essentially going to say is that, you know, it is binding because the rules, the laws, the consequences are there. <laughs> And they can't be ignored, but it's not our job to bind them. Okay. They can actually be bound by the things that happen. Okay, so same idea. This is, we're getting a consensus here. And we're almost out of time, so I'm going to give Jennifer, and then I'm going to wrap it up. Jennifer. We use the word binding and enforcing. And I think it's binding, and it's binding to all. And the Great Commission tells us that we should at least let them know what God's will is and what God's instruction is. Um, so it's not enforcing, but sharing, I think, is definitely something that is, we're responsible. So perhaps, so you'd say, we may, perhaps we seek to be persuaders, but we're not, um, not controllers. You'd see some distinction there. Okay. Okay, great. Not just ignore. Okay, so here, let me just, because the clock is ticking. Verse 5. They will, these are, this is the unbelieving world, they will have to give an account. It's binding. To him. Not me, right? Just you got you you got the right answer. They will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And I think that as we have transitioned, as the culture has shifted on this, here, here's my observation. Maybe it's true. Maybe this is not Bible, but I think it's so. We have wanted. It would be helpful if the whole world lived by a Christian ethic. It would make it so much easier to raise our children and to live ourselves in a world where the entire ecosystem is supporting these things. So imagine that coldness is good, okay? Imagine like you're trying to keep a drink ice cold. It's a whole lot easier to keep a drink ice cold if it's 30 degrees outside, right? But if it's 80 degrees outside and you want to keep your drink cold, what do you have to do? That's what I you got to get a bunch of ice, okay? So I think that we have kind of lived as if, like, 
wouldn't it be nice if the whole world were nice 30, 30 degrees and our drinks stayed nice and cold? And as the temperature in the world has gotten warmer and warmer and warmer and hotter and hotter and hotter, and we're like, my kid, who is this drink, is the temperatures rise, not just in the culture, but for my kid. And now, shoot, now i got to do a bunch of remedial ice packing in order to keep this drink at the proper temperature. And that's a lot more work. It's a lot harder to raise sexually pure children in a society that thinks that's stupid. And so I think we've been like, y'all knock it off. Be good, because you're making my life hard, right? But that's not our thing. They are accountable, but they're accountable to the Lord. They're not accountable to me. And so, the, but I have an obligation to try to help my kids grow up in this world. And of course, like, how many of you have daughters? Do you want your girls to grow up and to marry a guy who has looked at thousand hours of pornography you don't but that's probably going to happen okay this is there's a cost there is a societal cost this world that we live in it's like man we're just the the water is that the, the atmosphere maybe not probably but maybe this is not an unlikely thing right and so we're like ah, i wish y'all would stop that but that's not ours to do we don't get to control the world we have an obligation just to ourselves and to those that are, that are directly under our care and our provision, right? So it's a strange thing. And when I think we need to be thoughtful and we need to be careful about when we are trying to make the world do something that they, they don't feel any accountability to us. They're accountable to the Lord. That day is coming. But we need to be a little more, uh, I think, thoughtful about the limits of our actual power. Make sense? Okay, so we're almost out of time and I got to go put on a dress. So I got, I got a roll. Um, uh, let's see, one more thing I wanted to say. I don't think we can do it. Um, I'll just do a really quick last verse. Preach the, preach the gospel because preach the gospel to living people. That's what he's saying. Well, let me just do it like this. Real, real quick. I'm not going to be able to unpack this as well as I wish. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Some people think that means that you preach the gospel to the dead, some weird thing. This is not that. He's just, they're, they're, they're dead now. But they weren't dead when we preached to them. He's saying, this is all of this. This is why we do the work to share Christ, to move towards people. Because we know that eventually they're going to die. And many of them already have. And we want them to, to live to God according to the Spirit. I just, you, that, that verse is not as weird as it might sound. He's not talking about preaching to the dead. Preaching to those that are living who will die. Everything we do, we live our lives in light of the fact that life is short. And death is coming. And one day they will. Christians and non-Christians will be accountable to the Lord. And in these days of infinite consequence, we graciously, we winsomely, we persuasively speak to people of his love and his mercy and his grace, of the judgment and that which is to come. We do it now because we know that the window where that, will be, where that can be done is closing. It won't be open forever. So we'll get about the task and do it right now. And that too is weird. But we already counted the cost. We already decided, you know what? I'm in. There will be suffering. There's a price to be paid to be a Christian, but it's worth it. So I pay it, and we get about the work of the kingdom. All right? Uh, I think that's all we got. So, oh, no class next Sunday. It's Easter. We will not have Sunday school on Easter, so I'll see you in two weeks. Thanks, friends.